country in the streets. Don't get hung up in this fourth party bullshit. Don't get hung up in peace candidates. Come on, we gotta fight it out. Where the only power we can build is, that's the base. We gotta build a strong base and someday we gotta knock those motherfuckers who control this thing right on their ass. Came out of conditions that were genuine and the struggle was genuine, the reality was genuine and had to make the transition from being a student movement and a resistance movement and a protest movement into becoming a revolutionary movement that was broader than students, that took the student base and exploded it into the whole of the American people. That was a change and a transition that demanded a lot of political maturity and most everybody was not adequate enough to make that transition without a lot of mistakes being made. We no longer simply resist the pigs. We no longer trap ourselves so that the only possible motion is in response to pig attacks. We have gone on the offensive. It is we who call the shots now. Hey everyone, this is Walking Through Fire and I'm your host, Brian Hoops. We're going to pick up our series on the weathermen. We last left the weathermen in the aftermath of the Greenwich Village townhouse explosion that killed three of their own. After months of soul-searching and ideating a new strategy, the leaders of the Weathermen, at this point Bernadine Dorn, Jeff Jones, and Bill Ayers, had settled on a more non-violent strategy and had moved to Northern California. 1970 was probably the most active year of the Weathermen. I'm not going to go over every single attack that they carried out, but almost every month in 1970 there was a bombing of government offices, bank buildings, and military bases throughout the year in Washington, D.C., California, Chicago, and New York City, to name a few. One of the more notable actions carried out by the Weathermen was the jailbreak of counterculture figure Timothy Leary. The jailbreak occurred in September 1970. The Weathermen were contacted by the Brotherhood of Internal Love, which was described as the quote-unquote hippie mafia. The Brotherhood was the organization that produced the bulk of LSD that was circulated in the United States, and it is theorized that even though all members of the Brotherhood were imprisoned by the late 70s, the LSD they made was still circulated in American markets as late as the mid-2000s. Basically, if you lived in the U.S. between the 70s to early 2000s and you dropped acid at any point in time, it more than likely was produced by this group. The Brotherhood believed Leary was falsely imprisoned, which I tend to agree with. Leary had been arrested for a very small amount of marijuana, but was serving something like 10 years in prison. Leary was a middle-aged former Harvard psychologist who had partaken in LSD experiments carried out during the MKUltra years of the CIA. Overnight, Leary became the de facto spokesman for use of LSD, encouraging all to indulge to gain better consciousness. He also coined one of the most notable phrases of the counterculture movement of the 1960s. Turn on, tune in, drop out. Throughout the mid-60s, Leary was arrested numerous times across California for possession of small amounts of weed. In reality, though, Leary was kind of a goofy fuck. For example, he tried running as governor of California after he was arrested in 1965 for, again, a minor marijuana possession charge. He was kind of like an early version of Vermin Supreme or Joe Rogan of his time. Anyway, in 1968, after being arrested for possessing two joint roaches, Leary was sentenced to 10 years in prison. Now, the exact reason as to why the Brotherhood broke out Leary has never really been revealed, but being Leary was such a proponent of using LSD, it seems like they broke him out as he was basically the mascot for acid at the time. 
It would be like if Jello broke Bill Cosby out of prison because he was such a good spokesman and not a, you know, date rapist or anything. On September 15, 1970, Mark Rudd, Bernadine Dorn, and other weathermen traveled to California Men's Penal Colony West to pick up Leary. Penal Colony West was regarded as a minimum security prison, and Leary was able to shimmy out of a window. He climbed across a telephone wire to a pole and met with the weathermen in their pickup truck. They drove to a nearby gas station where Leary ditched his prison uniform, eventually fled abroad to Libya where he lived with Black Panther leader Eldridge Cleaver who was also on the run, and eventually bounced around to Switzerland, Afghanistan, and a multitude of other countries. The Leary prison break was cheered on by hippie youth who praised the weathermen and looked at them as these Robin Hood type characters, but was scoffed at by everyone else in the revolutionary scene. This caused the weathermen to lose more cred within the revolutionary scene because it was believed that if you're going to do a prison break, it should be a member of the Black Panther Party and not someone like Leary, who was an older white dude that wasn't even involved within the revolutionary movement. The next major action of the weathermen was to plant a bomb in the U.S. Capitol building. There had been various smaller bombings carried out by the weathermen, but they were against soft locations such as smaller corporate or government offices. The Capitol bombing was a prime example of the nonviolent tactics the weathermen had adopted. Late in the afternoon on February 28, 1971, Bill Ayers entered the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. in a disguise. He went to basically an abandoned corridor, found a bathroom, and placed the bomb in an in the ceiling. At least from what I could tell in my research, it was Bill Ayers who did it because out of all the weathermen that are still around, he is the one that gives the most details on the bombing. In part one in the opening, I played a part of the news report that covered the story. After the bomb was planted, one of the weathermen called the Capitol switchboard about a half hour before midnight and say there was a bomb set to detonate. There were not a lot of employees in the building at the time, so everyone was able to evacuate. The only casualty of the bombing was the toilet on the first floor. The Capitol bombing was more symbolic than it was tactical, which fell in line with the weatherman's strategy. It was also this type of tactic that made the weatherman fizzle out of the news cycle, and it also kind of prompted the news to start taking shots at the weatherman, calling them the bathroom bombers. Through the next year, the weatherman would go on to bomb high-end targets, such as the Pentagon and a courthouse in California. With all these bombings going on, the FBI quickly began their investigation in tracking down the weathermen. However, they were quickly blackballed because of the way the FBI carried out the investigation and the general climate of the Bureau at the time. This was still considered the J. Edgar Hoover era of the FBI, and also keep in mind that this was also like the early days of post-civil rights America. The FBI at the time was essentially 99.9% .9 white men in an age range of their late 20s to early 50s. From an investigative standpoint, the way the FBI would carry out intelligence collection when looking into groups like Mafia or the Weathermen or the KKK is to find an informant within the organization. The reason behind this is that it is easier to turn to a person who is already affiliated with the group and can get a more natural interaction with them. I know TV and movies typically show agents get, getting sent in undercover, which does in fact happen in real life, but it happens in extremely rare circumstances. Another dumb thing about the Hoover era of the FBI was the strict grooming standards, which all agents had to adhere to at all times, no matter the assignment. 
Agents were expected to have the stereotypical FBI look. High and tight haircut, clean shaven, and their unofficial uniform was a black suit with white shirt and black tie. The weathermen were all in their late teens or early 20s. The oldest member was Bernadine Dorn, and keep in mind she was only 26 when the group went underground. Also remember at how tight the weathermen were when they were, went underground. Members couldn't talk to their families or friends, and members were frequently moved from city to city every few weeks or months, so it wasn't like the FBI could just plan an agent into the organization. Early in the forming of the Weathermen, the FBI was able to get an informant, and his name was Larry Grathwall. Grathwall's time as an informant for the Weathermen was short-lived. He ran with the Weathermen from around spring of 1969 when the Days of Rage was being planned until about April 1970. Grathwall is a bit of a contentious character in the story of the weatherman his story is interesting nonetheless especially to me because he's he is from cincinnati ohio where i currently live and he spent most of his life in neighborhoods and areas that i've either hung around or lived in Grathwall grew up in the Oakley neighborhood and was in a street gang in the late 1950s. By the mid-60s, he enlisted in the U.S. Army. He served in the 101st Airborne Division as an infantryman in the early stages of the Vietnam War and had recently separated from the Army. Grathwall attended the University of Cincinnati where he was a business administration major and worked part-time as a dock worker at Shalito's Department Store in downtown Cincinnati. One day in the spring of 1969, he and some friends were hanging out on the steps of that one church by University of Cincinnati. It's now an urban outfitter across the street from that shell. When he noticed a particularly dirty group of hippies were coming towards him. One of the hippies who went by the name Outlaw asked Grathwall and his friends for some change. They gave him some coins and Outlaw in return gave them a copy of an underground newspaper that had a bunch of shitty political cartoons and notices for the upcoming Days of Rage in Chicago. With all the anti-American sentiment that was in the paper, Grathwall showed it to his ex-father-in-law, who was a retired Cincinnati police officer, who then referred Grathwall to the Cincinnati FBI office. The FBI asked Grathwall to continue to immerse himself within the weathermen. Grathwall would go on to have a direct relationship with Bill Ayers. Allegedly, Ayers had told Grathwall that he was the ideal recruit for the weathermen. He was poor, or at least Ayers' envisionment of what poor was, an army veteran in white, which Ayers surmised would attract the white working class and add legitimacy to the weathermen. I'm not going into a detailed account of Grathwall as an informant, but I will talk about the parts of his story that have some credibility. In his book, Bringing Down America, Grathwall discusses the mundane details of day-to-day -day life of being underground. The one thing I found really interesting was his detailed explanation of the criticism, self-criticism ses sessions that tribes would hold. They're also referred to as crit, self-crit, or CSC, and I discussed some of these during the Patty Hearst episode. Crit, self-crit was part public interrogation and part verbal abuse. Members would essentially roast each other and reveal incredibly personal shit about themselves, while other members would question them as to why they were a part of the revolutionary movement and asking them all these like bold-ended questions like when the revolution escalates, would you be willing to kill your parents and your immediate family? They would force the question members to give very detailed answers like, for example, you know, if you would kill your parents, how exactly would you do it? The crit-self-crit tactic is similar to what cults do to build a subconscious allegiance to your fellow members and reinforce your own like personal mission and personal involvement within 
in the cult, or in this case, the revolutionary movement. One other part of Grathwall's story that is pretty convincible is how he describes the planning and participation in an attempted bombing of a Detroit police station and a police substation. The police substation was a coffee and donut shop that was frequented by police as well as local neighborhood families. Grathwall went into detail on how the devices were built. The cell placed explosives with a fuse into a paper bag and that bag was placed into another paper bag. The plan would be to walk by the police station and the coffee shop and drop a lit cigarette into the bag that would burn through the paper and then light the fuse. Nowadays, cigarettes have chemicals placed in them for cigarettes to slowly burn out and paper bags were more flimsy back then, so the cigarette would easily burn through and set off the fuse. Grathwell did all the scouting for the Detroit bombing, but at last minute was moved by Bill Ayers to a different cell in New York City. Grathwell tipped off his handlers in the FBI who later warned the Detroit Police Department about the attack, but didn't take action until the morning after the date of the attack. When Detroit police investigated the areas around the targets, they found one device that was not put together correctly and one that the cigarette did not burn completely through the bag. Around April 1970, Grathwell was arrested in Manhattan with fellow weathermen Linda Evans and Diana Dongy. Grathwell had set up the arrest with the FBI and had Evans and Dongy booked on attempting to forge checks. Eventually, Grathwell would testify to a Senate committee that investigated domestic terrorism at the time. Grathwell passed away in 2013. After his time in the weathermen, he was put in witness protection in Northern California and worked for Pacific and Electric Gas Company, but eventually returned to Cincinnati. He ended up writing the book Bringing Down America and occasionally appeared for interviews on Christian public access radio shows and did a few appearances on Fox News and some other more conservative-leaning programs. Some critique Grathwell as a money grabber, but I think that's bullshit. For one, at the time of his death, he lived in a one-bedroom apartment in the east side of Cincinnati. Additionally, later versions of his book would be self-published, if not all versions. I'm not trying to disparage all self-published authors, but some of you can tell they did all the work themselves, which sometimes does not work uh, well in the book authorship field. Grathwell did make it a point in his later life to confront former weathermen such as Mark Rudd. Bill Ayers, on the other hand, when asked about Grathwell, scoffs and says shit like, we knew he was a cop all along. Ayers is full of shit because if you were the leader of one of the FBI's most highly investigated group and in an underground status, why would you let someone like Grathwell into your network and expose him to credible operational details and plans of action? Bill Ayers is just butthurt because Grathwell's story takes away from his own narrative that he's some slick revolutionary genius that outsmarted the U.S. government, despite the lack of any tangible victories of his faux revolution. That was a quick overview of the FBI's only informant into the weathermen. The overall investigation investigation conducted by the FBI was blunder after blunder. While they did get Grathwall in for a short amount of time, it did not yield sufficient actionable intelligence. So the FBI started using more drastic tactics that were referred to as black bag tactics. It sounds shady and by today's standards, highly unconstitutional. This was basically the 70s version of the Patriot Act. Being the FBI had an idea of the main leadership of the weathermen, they began surveillance on close family members. Bernadine Doran's sister, Jenny acted as a sort of above-ground contact that, that fed news to the weathermen and would occasionally meet up with her 
her sister to provide money and other material support. The FBI pulled all punches from breaking into Weatherman's family's homes and bugging their phones to opening and monitoring letters in the mail. The opening of mail was probably the most effective tactic as it did lead the FBI to track down certain safe houses of the Weatherman. However, the Weather Underground were privy to this. One member who asked later about if she knew her mail was being opened responded, yeah, we knew because our mailman would tell us when he would stop by on his route. The illegal wiretaps is what the FBI depended on the most to build a case, as at the time, audio recordings, particularly phone recordings, were considered the most credible evidence to use in court. The phone recordings were kiboshed in 1973, though, as the Supreme Court passed a law stating that electronic surveillance and open mail could not be used in court without a court-issued order, so the charges and investigation against the weathermen were dropped. Of course, when the FBI has open an investigation on you, they don't exactly send you a letter in the mail. This is also true when they end an investigation on you. Also keep in mind this is the 70s, there is no social media or 24 hour news cycle, so most likely the only source of news the weatherman was viewing was probably a local daily paper. Bernadine Dorn would eventually kind of figure it out as she was removed from the FBI's top 10 most wanted list in 1973. Also in 1973, the U.S. ended the war in Vietnam, which to the public eye was the main motivation behind the Weathermen and other radicalist movements of the day. Slowly but surely, stories and headlines about the Weathermen gradually moved from the front page news to virtually not existing. Life in the underground was shitty enough, even when the Weathermen had some positive public support. I mentioned this in the first episode, in the Patty Hearst episode, but for rank-and-file Weathermen, day-to-day life was extremely boring. Days were typically spent on working on their fake IDs and perfecting their disguises. Living conditions were very, very shitty. Typically, a cell would be between three to nine people crammed in a studio or one-bedroom apartment. They would all sleep on mattresses on the floor and virtually had no furniture and generally would share one toothbrush among cell members. Weathermen were also so poor they would live on rice and beans and would resort to begging for change on the street, which they refer to as, quote, donation collecting or charity events. This should come as no surprise, but the leadership of the Weathermen or the Weather Bureau lived a lot more comfortably. Bill Ayers at one point lived in a high-end luxury apartment by himself in San Francisco. One weatherman who visited him was disgusted at his lavish living conditions, and you can tell they were in a hard place because she emphasized how spoiled Ayers was living because he had butter in his refrigerator. To give you more reference as to how much of a piece of shit Bill Ayers is, during this time period, his brother Rick who Bill had convinced to desert the army and join the Weathermen, was living in a homeless camp with his then then seven-month pregnant girlfriend. As you could imagine, the more rank-and-file Weathermen began to break away from their cells and return to normal life. The Weathermen bombings continued sparsely, but the overall drive or motivation to continue the movement was drastically dwindled. At this point, it was basically the core members of the Weather Bureau that were carrying on the fight, and they were primarily located in New York City and California at large. As I've mentioned throughout this series, I'm not going to go into every detail on every weather underground bombing for two reasons. One is there were a ton of bombings during this period in the 70s, which 
leads into reason two in that it is hard to determine which ones were credibly linked to the weathermen. The idea and main tactic of the weathermen is similar to how we see insurgencies carried out by the Taliban or lone wolf motives carried out by modern era like white supremacists, mass shooters. The tactic was to throw out ideas that appeal to a mass audience so that anyone could bomb a building and simply say they were part of the weathermen but in reality had no link and may have just aligned with their overall ideology. This could also be argued that bombings that were claimed by the weathermen could also just have been used as a distraction to commit other crimes. Either way, the weathermen at this point weren't exactly bringing in new members and had growing anxiety of the reality that they were going to be seen as irrelevant. The entire splash and allure of the weathermen was essentially dead. In an attempt to keep their dying call alive, the weathermen tried this weird way of starting a media outlet to revive their message. Their first crack at this was writing and publishing a book to reaffirm their core message. The book was titled Prairie Fire, which was basically a rewritten version of their original manifesto. You don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows, and their various communiques that were released. You can find Prairie Fire online for free, but I do warn you it is agonizing and painful to read. It's about 150 plus pages with pictures and has the tone that it was written by paranoid delusional hippies that were malnourished and had a head full of LSD. The book begins with a lengthy list of people they dedicate the book to. It includes Sirhan Sirhan, the man who assassinated Robert F. Kennedy a few years after his brother John F. Kennedy was killed by Lee Harvey Oswald which is an odd choice because RFK was probably the most legitimate voice for enacting change that the weathermen so yearned for in the civil rights era. The book was also dedicated to Charles Manson, who was incredibly racist and by all means the complete opposite of the weathermen's beliefs. Prairie Fire was made through silent publishers and was mostly for sale only in fringe bookstores. Prairie Fire was the precursor to the Weathermen's other attempt to stay relevant in, in the media. Next move was to go on the big screen. Around 1975, the Weathermen had made mutual contacts with director Emil De Antonio. De Antonio had grown infamous in this time as being a this uh, fringe documentary filmmaker that covered political and social issues no one wanted to really talk about. He was sort of like Morgan Spurlock who made Super Size Me or Michael Moore who is a super sized piece of shit. De Antonio's films were hard hitting but also did a good job at giving both sides the story and allowed groups to peel back the curtain and show the deeper workings of their organization. De Antonio first received a lot of flack from his documentary about the Vietnam War called The Year of the Pig, which was released in 1968. The weatherman agreed to take part in De Antonio's film on the condition that their faces would not appear on camera and that De Antonio's crew could only film them from certain angles. I watched Underground on YouTube, which I still think is available to this day. It is a fucking bizarre movie. The film features Bill Ayers, Kathy Boudin, Bernadine Dorn, Jeff Jones and Kathy Wilkerson, which were the core members of the Weathermen. D'Antonio and his film crew had to meet the Weathermen at an undisclosed location. I'm not exaggerating this, but the Weathermen had a third-party drive a van to meet with D'Antonio. When they met, D'Antonio and his crew were instructed to blindfold themselves, and they were transported to a Weatherman safe house where the filming took place. 
The majority of the movie is Weatherman being shot from behind while sitting on a couch or behind a mesh net while sitting at a kitchen table in the safe house. The only interesting part of the movie is that it includes footage the Weatherman shot at their early protests. Outside of that, it's a fucking dry movie. Before its release, the FBI attempted to subpoena D'Antonio for the footage in a last-ditch effort to gain evidence against the Weatherman, but that was struck down by the federal court. The film itself was released nationally, but wasn't promoted highly, as documentaries aren't big box office splashes, and are typically reserved for people who like looking into fringe subjects such as myself, and I imagine everyone who is listening to this right now. It failed spectacularly and received negative press as being such a boring movie. The flop of their film further disheartened the Weathermen and moved them into their last major move. The Weathermen had a shitty reputation at this point amongst all these progressive movement groups. A lot of them thought of the Weathermen as rich white kids cosplaying revolutionary and were accomplishing nothing more than bombing bathrooms. The Weathermen Bureau believed the idea that by themselves they were weak. But if they were able to unite all these different progressive movement groups, they could lead the charge. The problem fell back into optics. You had the Weathermen who were, again, rich white kids playing revolutionary that were hoping to unite all these groups of racial minorities. These groups included nonviolent organizations such as the American Indian Movement and the remnants of the Black Panther Party, to name a few. The remaining Weathermen decided to rebrand themselves as the Prairie Fire Organizing Committee. The plan was to drop this idea in a subtle manner during a convention that all these groups were set to attend. It was called the Hard Times Convention and it was set to take place from January 30th to February 1st of 1976. The main representative groups included the aforementioned American Indian Movement, the Socialist Workers Movement, the United Auto Workers, and various early vegan slash vegetarian movement groups. So I'm giving some of these examples just to give you an idea as to the wide breadth of groups that attended and that the Weathermen were trying to harness under one umbrella group that in turn the Weathermen would lead. The Hard Times Convention was mainly organized by the Weathermen or now the Prairie Fire Organizing Committee and it quickly spun out of control. The attendees quickly realized that the lectures and literature being distributed was by the Weathermen and caught on to what they were trying to do. The conference almost turned into a full riot after members of an animal rights group got pissed because there were no vegetarian options for mule service at the convention and various feminist groups were worked up for the lack of pro-feminist speakers. Representatives from Puerto Rican nationalist groups and members of the Black Panther Party called out the Weathermen of undermining the revolutionary movement. The Hard Times Convention ended earlier than expected and Bernadine Dorn and the Weather Bureau were summoned by members of the Black Panther movement. They demanded not only an apology but also put the remaining weathermen through what they described as harshest crit self-crit session they ever experienced. During the crit self-crit session, they made Bernadine Doran admit on tape that she was a racist and exploited the Black Panther movement for her own gain and did not acknowledge the struggle of others. The remaining members who were still unaware that they were not being investigated by the FBI went their separate ways. Bill Ayers and Bernadine Doran started a relationship with each other and moved to New York City. In 1980, the couple had come to realize they couldn't live a life underground and decided to turn themselves in. From how I understand it, they tried going to a New York City police station, but they couldn't book them because the federal charges had been dropped regarding the bombings. They did let them know that they still had warrants in Chicago for the Days of Rage, which the couple eventually pleaded guilty to and were ultimately given probation for a year or so. 
Mark Rudd turned himself in in 1977 and also received a small fine and spent a couple of weeks in jail. He returned to Columbia University where he was expelled to give a speech during some rally in the late 70s. Rudd believed himself to be this popular figure that would draw crowds of thousands, but fewer than 100 people showed up. In fact, a poll was taken of students that were asked if they knew who Mark Rudd was and knew about his involvement with the Weathermen, and like less than 20 students out of 200 or so that were polled had heard of him before. Dave Gilbert and Kathy Boudin continued their life in the underground. They formed a group called the May 19th Communist Organization. M19 was a fairly pathetic attempt to keep the revolutionary movement going. Their numbers were never above about four people, but was unique in that it is the only female majority terrorist organization to ever exist in the United States. M19 took part in a 1981 Brinks armored truck robbery, which resulted in the killing of two of the three security guards and seriously injuring the third. The gunmen were former members of the Black Liberation Army, with the getaway drivers being Dave Gilbert and Kathy Boudin. The robbery was obviously botched because the members of the BLA were insane cokeheads. The saddest part about the Brinks robbery is that the only security guard that survived ultimately died on September 11, 2001. He died doing a drop-off to one of the Twin Towers as the plane crashed. After the botched robbery, Dave Gilbert was sentenced to 75 years in prison for second-degree murder, and Kathy Boudin pleaded guilty for a 20-to-life sentence. Boudin was paroled in 2003, and Gilbert was granted clemency by Italian rapist-turned-former governor Andrew Cuomo in August 2021. Gilbert was released in November of 2021. The other main weathermen resurfaced in the late 70s to mid 80s and have gone on to live fairly mundane lives. Mark Rudd is a retired professor of mathematics who worked for the University of Arizona. He, much like other former weathermen, wrote a book about their days underground, but most of, the, most of those books are incredibly fucking boring. They all go on the same trajectory in that they start with a detailed account of how they came to their radicalist ideas that led them to the weathermen and how they look back on it in regret. These books typically don't go into detail about what they actually did day to day while in the underground. They also don't detail any of the bombings or how they were specifically planned. The only accounts we have of those are from guys like Larry Grathwall and an honestly speaking former weatherman. I would imagine the reasoning behind this is because the weathermen don't want to unintentionally be held accountable for any crimes they may have committed in the past. You can see this in modern day interviews with former weathermen. They all have done public interviews and when asked questions about them being in the weather underground, they give these very measured, carefully worded answers. And this brings me to the last person that I want to cover in this where are they now section, Bill Ayers. Out of all the weathermen, Ayers has been the most public facing of the former group. He has done numerous public appearances and public speaking events. In his and Dorn's days since they resurfaced from the underground, both have become professors at Northwestern University. Ayers received his PhD in education, whereas Dorn was a law professor. They are still alive today and live in the Gold Coast neighborhood of Chicago, ironically the same neighborhood the weathermen hosted their days of rage and targeted that neighborhood because of the symbolism of wealth. Ayers had stayed relatively quiet and was kind of trotted on news shows as a novelty of sorts. In 2008, Ayers came back in a small splash that attempted to tarnish the Obama administration on Obama's second run for his presidency. 
I'm not going to harp on it too much because it was a deep stretch by the Republican Party to try to say that Barack Obama had ties with the Weather Underground. Obama publicly stated that he did not personally know heirs, but did say that they may have mutual colleagues and they may have crossed paths briefly at some sort of function. Ayers basically states the same thing when he gets asked the question. One thing that is entertaining is when he gets asked about FBI informant Larry Grathwall. Typically, Ayers gets really flustered and immediately goes into how he knew Grathwall was an informant the entire time he was with the weatherman. It's honestly Ayers trying to save face because he knew he was outsmarting and got played. Ayers is honestly the shittiest person out of the weatherman because at least people like Mark Rudd or Kathy Boudin will address their old beliefs and time in the weatherman and try to make people understand why they bought into the fever pitch. Ayers, on the other hand, fully justifies his actions in the underground and doubles down on them. It's funny because when people ask Ayers or Dorn about the extreme quotes they made in the past, such as their open support for the Manson family, they sidestep the questions or say they don't remember saying things like that, or they say that the quote was, you know, taken out of context or some other bullshit. I would honestly have more respect for a guy like Ayers if he just owned up to his shit. I'm going to close this one out with one of the last public appearances of Ayers. Around 2014, Ayers was booked to interview one of the few Americans who's willing to just put it all on the line to tell the truth. That man is Mr. Alex Jones of InfoWars. And I say that rather sarcastically because Alex Jones is a moron and a piece of shit, just like Bill Ayers. So, that's my series on The Weatherman. Quick lessons learned uh, from the series I hope you take away. Uh, Bill Ayers equals uh, human diaper. And if you do find yourself living in a commune that has open relationship sex status, uh, wear a condom and wash the sheets. I'm Brian Hoops, and thank you for listening. We haven't talked about anything substantive. Okay, well, you're, again, you're setting and defining things like MSNBC saying, parents, your kids don't belong to you. Let me ask when you this did, question. Wait, do you support abortion? Wait, when did I say that? When did I say parents don't belong to their kids? I said MSNBC said that. No, they did not. What are you talking about? I they no said we need to break through this view that, you know, kids belong to their parents and that they actually belong to the wider community. I have not... You know, I'm so bewildered about what you're talking about. So part of it is we have to break through our kind of private idea that kids belong to their parents or kids belong to their families and recognize that kids belong to whole communities. Here's where I stand, uh, Professor Ayers. I don't know if you've read None Dare Call It Conspiracy by Gary Allen. I read that book back when I was like 14 years old. Since then, um, pretty much all of it has been proven to be accurate from my perspective, where ultra-rich crony capitalists fund socialist and communist movements, but also fascist movements, because they like to deal with command and control systems with domesticated populations. And I think that history's shown that collectivism delivers hell on earth and forced work camps. Now, that's why I disagree with you fundamentally. Uh, and I guess you believe that we have a real form of capitalism and you disagree with that. I don't believe we have capitalism. I believe we have fascism sitting on top of a socialist management system and that the left-right paradigm that's taught is a fraud. What do you say? I have no idea what you're talking about. I, you know, I've never heard of that, but that's fascinating. I don't know what, again, what are you referring to? Never have been. I don't know what you're referring to. Who are you talking about? And I don't even know what that means. Oh boy! Well, that's that's the hardcore commie trying to ch trying to trying to charm us, and oh, I don't know this, oh, I don't know that.
And for radio listeners, we show the cops he bombed, that he blinded and, 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 and hurt, and, or the weatherman quote did, that he led. Uh, and we uh, show the documentation, the big government foundations funding him directly uh, with mainstream news articles. So that's really a TV piece. So I'm just adding some of that for the radio listeners to understand that the guy is an absolutely deceptive creature. As if you need me to tell you.